Thank you very much, and thanks for spending the Saturday afternoon with me today. And, and Dr. Lipton will be here in a few minutes also. So we, we wanted to conclude uh, the session this afternoon by really saying, okay, transformative care is a great model, um, and understanding how important it is to do treatment and self-management training, and how do we do that with technology and a team? So the bottom line, though, is how do you implement that as part of your routine care? That's the hard thing to do because there are so many risk factors or contributing factors that are driving chronic pain in any individual patient. But the question is how do you identify those factors in that patient because you can't spend a, you know, days with them in their lifestyle you have to kind of ask questions and get into the deeper issues associated with that. But then once we even identify those risk factors for driving chronic pain, how do you address them? How do you help the patient make the changes that they need to do in their lifestyle to minimize the chance of that pain continuing on and on and on despite the treatments? So that's a challenge we have, and that's what we wanted to try to address this afternoon within the next uh, hour and a half, uh, two hours. I really, we also appreciated the conversation, the questions we had this morning, and uh, we want to continue that this afternoon. So we'll present maybe an hour, hour and 15 minutes or so, and then we want to open it up to some more discussion, because that's really where the, the nitty gritty occurs. So transformative care. We, there's some basic paradigms that we have to understand within our clinical practices that have to be in general shifted so that the patients begin to understand their very, very important role in their management of pain. And interestingly enough, before I shifted to these paradigms, it was a burden seeing pain patients because I felt this huge responsibility on me to solve their problem and treat them and help them get rid of the pain. Once I shifted to this other paradigm, I realized I'm just a facilitator. Shifted to the patient, and the patients are willing to accept that responsibility to some extent as long as they get help and direction in that process. So the burden just went off my shoulders. All of a sudden, now it's a delight to see these patients every day and at the you know, end of the day, I feel so good about it because patients have uh, identified and, and are making the changes that they need. They know what they need to do in general. And I, I feel much more uh, relaxed you know, about managing patients on the average that have had five years of pain on the average that sees me and at least four other clinicians prior to seeing me. And so that's the burden we have as health professionals is how do we take that stress over us and then we shifted the paradigm. And one of the key things is that pain, patients need to know that pain is there for a reason. It is a protector. It is to protect us, to tell us that there's something wrong in our system. And in most cases, as you already know, it's myofascial or muscle in origin, although the joint is a close second and the interaction between the two is very important, but there's also neuropathic, neurovascular, uh, many other conditions that are driving chronic pain. But it's a warning sign to protect us fr from 
harm and eliminate the cause and the pain subsides. Now, of course, that's a model that applies to acute pain, but we rarely apply it to chronic pain. Um, you know, if you have a splinter in your finger and it's causing pain, you take the splinter out and it all gets better. But in chronic pain, it is a lot more complicated. So with the complication, we have to understand these two basic concepts. What are risk factors and what are the patient's protective factors or protective actions? So risk factors are characteristics, conditions, behaviors, such as poor sleep, diet, stress, smoking, that increase the possibility of illness and injury. It essentially drives the process, the pathophysiology associated with pain and many other inflammation and other conditions. Whereas protective factors, and I use this loosely, these, these terms, because the patient kind of understands it, but it's not truly a cure, but these are the things that we do on a daily basis, whether it's characteristics, conditioned behaviors, such as exercise, healthy diet, that prevents or reduces the vulnerability or developing an illness. Now, historically, these are two concepts that are applied to public health, but rarely extended into clinical practice. So we believe strongly in a transformative care model, we have to implement this within our clinical practice, these concepts of risk factors and protective factors. So, and this is self-explanatory, that the balance between protective factors and risk factors is really what either drives chronic pain or healing and resolution to some extent. So the more protective factors, or the less protective factors you have and the more risk factors you have, the more you're going to tilt the balance to having more pain, delayed recovery, failed treatments, and chronic pain, addiction, disability, and all the consequences of it. Whereas, if you have an injury, and you have a lot of protective factors, and you have minimal risk factors, you're going to heal. You're going to get better. And the majority of people who have acute injuries, accidents, whiplash injuries, whatever, type of accident usually get better. But there is about 10 to 20, 30% or so of the patients who really continue to suffer. Why? It starts with an injury maybe, but it continues over time. And this balance between if you have more protective factors on a regular basis and less risk factors, you'll generally improve and, and heal. So those are the concepts that we really want to address. And so when I did a systematic review of the literature looking at all risk factors that drive chronic pain and all protective factors that will prevent us or protect us from developing chronic pain, I found an amazing amount of literature out there in all areas or realms of our life. And so risk factors and protective factors affect pain in all realms of our life, including the physical factors, the mind, the emotions, your lifestyle, your social environment, your physical environment, and your spiritual or that purpose, that drive, those hopes and dreams, the higher level cognitive functionings and so these factors will generate either peripheral sensitization risk 
or central sensitization risk, either increases the risk or decreases the risk. And so progression of pain, I made that quote in the first at the beginning this morning about the fact that the majority of patients, if they have pain after their injury at one month, the majority of patients still have pain five years later despite treatment. And that's because the majority of patients do have these risk factors that can drive it. So let's, let's look at this process right here where you have peripheral to central factors, whether it's muscle tensing habits, postural habits, or behavioral changes. You may have trauma, strain, injury that is the onset then you get this acute, acute pain, and it really becomes chronic sometime between one month and six months. So if there are these mainly physical factors that drive this risk, and it becomes chronic, then you've got stress, emotional issues, sleep problems, anxiety, and ultimately will become intractable to some extent and uh, depression, disability, social factors. And so these are from peripheral to central factors that drive this progression from acute pain to chronic to a tr intractable pain. Could you repeat the last couple of minutes of this? We've had distractions. Sure. In the back, yes, right. and can everybody hear me in the back okay? Okay, all right. Keep it quiet and everything. Now, let me repeat that again, because these are really important concepts. And feel free to make comments, ask questions as I progress, too. I don't want this to be necessarily a one-sided uh, lecture. So let me repeat that again. This slide reflects the progression from acute to chronic pain. And remember I talked about the fact that at one if you have pain at one month after injury, over 50% of the patients still have pain five years later despite treatments. Very important concept because what's happening is that these patients go from pain onset and, and then they have this acute pain somewhere between one month and six months which are driven by peripheral factors, risk factors poor posture, repetitive strain, tensing, behavioral changes. If these continue on, the pain becomes chronic. And then you have more centrally generated factors that may pre-exist that still creates more of a central sensitization that Dr. Lipton talked about this after this morning. So you have central peripheral sensitization, central sensitization, and then when you get to this intractable, then there's other factors, whether it's depression, disability, more social factors or environmental factors that contribute to this intractable pain. And so it's this progression that in the yellow is the pain and the, or yellow is a risk, pain is in red. And so as the pain continues, and as the risk factors continue, they go hand in hand. So the reason this is, is because we find ourselves in a pain cycle. Once you have pain, the reaction to pain is frequently tensing, 
or depression or anxiety or interference or a disability or in- inactivity or sitting in awkward postures because it hurts to sit in a good posture. So that cycle occurs, and when the cycle occurs, it drives this progression, and patients just keep going on and on and on and on for 65 years or whatever uh, that characteristic of the patient. So did that was that clear in the back there? Okay. So pain cycles, this is what we need to reverse. So the pain cycle is essentially you got the onset of pain, and it may contribute to disrupted sleep, fatigue, increased chemical use, like you know, caffeine. Caffeine, interesting enough, I did a randomized clinical trial of caffeine as an analgesic, and it works. In other words, you drink caffeine, you feel better, the pain is actually less. The thresh, pain threshold goes, goes up, so you're, you, know, you trigger less pain. So caffeine is an analgesic. That's why they add it to anacin, you know, Excedrin, and everything like that. Pardon? But I knew it was good for you. Yeah, right. Well, it's also a stimulant. But, please, question? Well, this was actually uh, a can of, uh, I think it was Coke. So how much milligrams are in a can of Coke? So um, it was an interesting study, and I was just thinking about that that would have the opposite effect. And it was actually my son's uh, high school uh, science project. (laughs) So, yeah, so we had all these teenagers come in and drink all this caffeine, and they were wired because, you know, caffeine and sugar together, whoa, that, that caused a lot of excitement, and, you know. But on the opposite side, when people are fatigued and they don't sleep well, they drink caffeine and they need it throughout the day. And then when you do that, what happens, you get into the rebound effects of caffeine and it generates more pain. It's same thing with opioids and other analgesics. So it is a risk factor for pain. And I've had, like I had this one patient, it was just amazing. He was a, off, he was a grocery store manager and he, had, uh, he always had a cup of coffee in his hand. You know, he's managing the whole grocery store and everything like that. And he probably went through 20, 25 cups of coffee during the day. And he came into me and he had these severe headaches every day. And sometimes he couldn't go to work and they were being complained about him and everything like that. And so I just, at this first visit, I screened for some of these things. And he was drinking 25 cups of caffeine. So I talked to him about caffeine and that it can be, have a rebound effect. It can make you feel great initially, but then, you know, it rebounds. So he cold turkey the coffee. He hated me. <laughs> so he came back the next time. I hate you. <laughs> and I said, what do you hate me for? You told me to get off caffeine. I did, and I had the worst headache I've ever had in my entire life. But then he said, the headache went away. And I haven't had it since then. My caffeine was the only cause of my headaches. And he was appreciative of what I had to say, but, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting, you know, the caffeine by itself can have a rebound effect. So you get into these cycles, increases muscle habits, pain, tension, poor posture, stress, anxiety, poor coping mechanisms. You know, you use caffeine as a coping mechanism instead of just taking some deep breaths and calming yourself. So 
people don't learn that. They need to be taught that. You're responsible for teaching that as a health professional. Our responsibility is to really say, okay, you've got this physical condition and we can treat it, but it's more effective long-term if we also train you to reduce the causes of your pain. You are in a cycle, and when I have a, I have a handout that shows the cycle and all the risk factors that are involved in that, and I just go through, I just want to say, oh yeah, I've got that one, I've got that one, I've got that, and they identify it. And so they're in a pain cycle and they need to reverse the pain cycle. So let's, how do we do that? We use a model called transformative care. And so transformative care means you, in myopain conditions, you treat the muscle, you desensitize with counterstimulation and myofascial release and, and uh, some treatments that really do work very well beyond the duration of the treatment, which is, of course, what we want. And you train the patient to reverse the pain cycle. We give them exercises immediately to improve range of motion, strength, and function. They do the self-myofascial release, but we also work with them on other types of exercises. And then we reduce the risk factors that strain the muscle and strengthen protective factors to heal the muscles. And I'll go through each one of these factors so you get the sense of the whole sort of scope of what we're looking at in terms of each individual patient. Um, it, it, and it, interestingly enough, makes it so much fun because it's almost like a detective job. You have to figure out what are the factors that are driving that person's pain. And there's 50, 75 different factors that are identified in the literature to drive acute to chronic pain well-documented in the literature. But interestingly enough, it's mostly in public health literature, not in our clinical literature. So, so let's first talk about treatments, and Dr. Lipton already discussed that to some extent because we still want to provide treatments because it is useful. It, it helps the patient immediately reduce some of the pain. And so what we want to know what treatment works the best. And so to do that, we really want to say, let's go through and see what the systematic reviews of the clinical trials, and Dr. Lipton talked about that already. But this is the, this is the hierarchy of the evidence. This is the highest level of evidence that we've got in terms of research, is systematic reviews of randomized clinical trials. So I'm gonna go through a few of the treatments. So I did a randomized, you know, I'm in academics, and so we do these over-exhaustive surveys of the literature, and we try to put it all together and get these statisticians to do it. And so not only did I review the literature and all the risk factors and protective factors that drive or protect you from chronic pain, we also did the same thing for treatments. So we looked at 52 different treatments that have randomized clinical trials that are placebo-controlled in general, uh, comparing the treatment to, to placebo or to some kind of control. So let me just give you a few. I'm not going to go through all 52 treatments here. We'll be here all afternoon. It is Saturday. So the methods that we do Medline search, we identify either a meta-analysis or treatments, at least one randomized clinical trial. We evaluate the quality of the randomized clinical trial. We compare the outcomes 
of the clinical trial qualitatively and quantitatively. So we take the data and we integrate it all together. I don't do that, but my statisticians do. And then we try to put it together into what's a, called a meta-analysis, and we do a forest plot, which kind of shows a diagram of that result. So here, for instance, is cognitive behavioral therapy, one of the most effective treatments that, that were shown. And uh, we were able to integrate, this was primarily for myofascial pain um, of the head and neck area. Um, so we found that, so the forest plot just shows, these are the different studies, these are the results. The one is neutral. That means it didn't favor placebo or cognitive behavioral. It was just neutral. So if the, di if the square goes to the left of the one, that means it's not effective at all against that the placebo was more effective. If it's to the right, it means that it is more effective than placebo or the control. So as you can see here that these five trials all favored CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, and that the diamond is the aggregate of the data. So with that aggregate data, it shows that it was significantly improved. And so cognitive behavioral treatments, including oral habit instruction, relaxation, biofeedback for TMD, myofascial pain, for all of these conditions was very effective in reducing the pain. Now, let me just review a few other things here, other treatments like exercise versus placebo. We had four different treatments. You can see where the diamond is. Exercise showed greater improvement than placebo in treating myofascial pain. This is primarily like stretching and strengthening. Okay, how about TENS? You know, more of a passive treatment, but something a patient can do themselves. And there was a several boosts here that show different types of stimulation, electrical uh, types of TENS. And so this was three studies that we looked at. And you can see that one was very neutral, but two of them were positive. So again, TENS shows greater improvement than placebo for myofascial pain and should be considered an effective treatment. How about like soft laser on trigger points? Another passive treatment, something physical therapists do. Uh, there was five clinical trials. Here's the studies. Zero is right where the midline is, and the diamond is off to the right. And it was significantly showed that laser therapy was very effective for myofascial trigger points. Um, how about therapeutic injections? So I don't show you the forest plot, but Trigger point injections, botulinum toxin, or acupuncture dry needling. The positives are that there's at least two to four positive randomized clinical trials. The negative means that there's at least one negative randomized clinical trial. So just to summarize, each of these are all positive, positive, positive with one negative. And uh, in general, all three of these things do show efficacy in treating myofascial pain. And you kind of expect that uh, also. All of them have been used. So here, for instance, is the Botox. You can see that three of the studies were pretty, you know, close to not effective or not effective, whereas 
uh, three of the studies were quite effective. But when you aggregate it together, it shows that Botox does work pretty well. Um, and showing a favorable effect of Botox uh, toxin A intervention compared to placebo. Uh, dry needling acupuncture, let me show this. We had four studies, and you can see the size of the square is also the size of the population that they study. So one study was pretty tiny, small population and others, but you know, you can see where the zero is, and the diamond is just off to the right. And so it does favor dry needling or acupuncture, but you know, somewhat. Not, you know, it is significant, but not that significant. So how about pharmacological agents, medications? So NSAIDs and acetamin, look at that efficacy. Almost everything showed that they did work for myofascial pain. Um, and uh, let's see, this is uh, 11 RCTs. So oh, it didn't come, come across. The SSRIs, weak evidence. The, uh, and a couple of other, these uh, opioids, interestingly enough, did not have. It's not listed here uh, when they converted the slides. They didn't show up. But one of these is opioids, modest evidence for a slight effect. And so really, acetaminophen or ibuprofen are the most effective. And here is NSAIDs compared to Tylenol or acetaminophen. And you can see that the NSAID was more, more effective than the acetaminophen. Two of them were, showed that they were equal. Two studies showed that the NSAID was more effective. Um, and then here is opioids versus NSAIDs. This is a very interesting series of studies. Look at where the diamond is. It is right down the middle. There is no difference in efficacy of opioids for pain relief now, not the euphoria that you, opioids are probably better at, but for just reducing the pain, opioids have the same equal effect as anti-inflammatories or NSAIDs. So, I mean, why, why do we use opioids? That's a question. Um, so, and the interesting thing about medications is this side effect. I feel a lot better since I ran out of these pills you gave me. So the side effects of medications are relatively high and in fact sometimes counteract the efficacy of it because as you can see, the efficacy of almost every one of these treatments was just a little bit better than placebo. Maybe 10%, 15%, maybe 20 with cognitive behavioral therapy, but not much. I mean, it is you know, not that significant. So the percentage of patients with medication failures is relatively high. This is, the, the, this is a study by Lipton that evaluated how well did the medications work just by a, a reflection uh, self-report. So they stopped the medication because it took too long or did not relieve all the pain, did not always work. But look at this, like 85%, 85%, almost 82%, pain returned, came with side effects. So medications, unfortunately, are just not as effective as we would like them to be. Uh, depends upon the condition, but this is primarily for musculoskeletal, like myofascial pain. 
So in summary, most treatments do work, but only a little better than placebo, maybe 10 to 15%. And uh, most treatments can help for different conditions, different reasons, the small effects above placebo, they have varying adverse effects, medications have more. And so we start with treatments with less risk, basically. I mean, that's kind of the the bottom line with regard to treatment, do something that helps a patient with minimal risk and adverse events. So the question is, how do we implement transformative care? Now we did talk about all the treatments. Now let's talk about the self-care and what are those risk factors and how do we really do that as part of our, our routine care? So. The components of a transformative care model um, includes the patient at the center, and then we have a health coach that supports them. We have online training. We have the health professional supporting the process within the clinic situation, and this is a telehealth coach. So it's generally over the phone, so you don't patients don't have to come into the clinic, which is the hard part about self-care. If they have to come into the clinic, drive there, take off work and everything, it's not going to be as effective as if the patient can learn something as within their environment and that somebody works with them on the phone, either video conferencing or through the cell phones. And then the patient has to have a support group, friends, family, other health professionals who really support. So everything surrounds the patient to help them change the behaviors that they need to do. And the coaching, which is interesting, and Dr. Lipton will talk a lot about this, they have to be a little bit more directive than a coaching model typically is about helping the patient identify the goals and chain and achieve those goals. But in that process, we have to say you need to make changes in your lifestyle in order to accomplish that. Like the caffeine in that individual who had 25 cups a day. If you don't change it, things aren't going to get better in general. So this is the model, and these, all these studies that I will show you about this program have been funded by the National Institutes of Health, and so we appreciate that uh, support. So the five T's of transformative care, which I've reinforced now, is you treat with evidence-based treatments, you test to identify risk factors and protective factors on the patients. And we developed a risk assessment that is validated to go through their entire life and ask very simple questions. Are you doing this, a risk factor, or that, a protective action? It's always a balance, you know? Most of the time, do you have a good posture or do you slouch in your chair with your forward head posture? Um, and so, uh, so it's an online assessment, and then you train the patient to reduce risk, and at the same time, you promote the protective factors. So you tell them, here's the problem, here's why it's causing your pain, and here's what you do to replace it. And what you do is a protective action, not reduce a risk factor. You reduce a risk factor only by replacing it with something positive that you do, like sitting up straight or reducing... Uh, improve the balanced, relaxed posture, you know, working on repetitive strain. And so you then address the whole patient with a team and all the risk factors, and that's where we use a health coach. Sometimes they call them, you know, a therapist, a 
online therapist or an educator, but it's somebody who can work with the patient over time. Did you have a question? No, no. And uh, then the last thing, the last T, is you've got to track the progress. You have to know, usually what happens now is the patient comes back to you to see them maybe a month or a month and a half later, and then you find out, well, how are you doing? Well, I'm doing better, or I'm doing worse. And, and you don't have any way to really track them in their lifestyle and on engagement of self-care, on how their symptoms are fluctuating, how how their functional status is improving. So we need some way to monitor them while they're at home between those monthly visits they have with, with me. So you track the outcomes of the care. So you try to integrate all that together. And uh, so for transformative care for myofascial pain, we this is our basic characteristics. Uh, for home program of stretching, cognitive behavioral therapy, we do treatments like the um, myofascial release and other treatments. We do pharmacological therapies, usually something that's over the counter, but we want to minimize that because of the adverse events. Physical therapies, acupuncture, dry needling, trigger point injections as needed. And with jaw problems, we also give them a splint. Uh, there are different orthotics. So that's kind of what we do within our clinic. And so as part of that, that whole transformative care model, this is where we shift the paradigms of care. So that first question that you pose to the, the patient, I'm happy to treat you, but it's more effective long-term if we also train you to reduce the cause of your pain. Are you interested? That has a psychological effect in shifting the paradigm to one are to engage in self-care. But then the implicit action is, well, what's causing my pain? The risk assessment and evaluations is that we have to assume that patients are multidimensional and that we have to understand that whole patient, not just you know, a couple of risk factors like uh, posture or caffeine or diet, but everything. Why not? Let's understand the whole person. And let's focus and shift the responsibility back to the patient where it belongs. They have to engage in self-care. That means they have to make changes and do things in their lifestyle. And if they're just going to be waiting back and pop a pill, they're not going to get better. So they have to understand that. We have to provide the education and training and as a process, then it creates this long-term sustainable change. And that is really what we're after. And so the care process, sorry, these didn't come up, is that we have to develop a strong relationship with the patient. That first visit with the patient is key. They have to know that you understand they have a physical problem and they have causes to that problem. And you have to connect with them and really focus on, on that relationship. And they have to do something. They have to be actively involved in their care and, like I said, take responsibility. But the process is that they need help to do that. That's where you come in. That's where the coaches, the physical therapists, other health professionals, soft psychologists uh, have to really provide, pull the patient along, provide them that support. 
And we have to recognize that there are ups and downs in the process. And so one of the, one of the lessons that we have in is realistic expectations. To understand that as a process is going to occur over six months to a year and that you're going to have times where the pain is really bad, it's still working, or times where it's a lot better, but it's that ups and downs that they have to just be realistic and, and expect that to occur. And then you have to really watch the patient, monitor the patient closely. We don't want them to go for months and months without coming in to get some reinforcement to get that support that's really needed. And ultimately, like this monarch, I love monarch butterflies. My mother loved monarch butterflies because they are very transformative and they fly all the way from Minnesota down to Mexico every year. They're pretty amazing, uh, but we want to transform that patient in this process. And that's where all of these paradigm shifts have to occur and reflect it. So we thought, okay, complicated, it's a process that really is more of a fantasy than anything. So how do we actually make this into reality? How do we do this as part of routine care? And as importantly, how do we get reimbursed for it from health plans? And so we sent out the grants to NIH to develop these toolkits, toolkits that, are, that really include all of the components that I just talked about. Oops, excuse me. Uh, risk assessment an online training program based on the risk that focuses on implementing, changing the risk by implementing protective actions. Um, tracking with a dashboard that allows a patient to fill out brief questionnaires as they go through the online training and the coaching. We have guidebooks that they can print out that actually has every one of the, the lessons on a handout that they can just read it if they don't want to go through and listen to it online. Um, and then we have access to many tools and resources that are helpful, that could be also helpful, like the massage tools that uh, we talked about. And, and we also have access to a telehealth coach. So all of this is integrated into what we call the PAC program for personalized activated care and training, and it's a patient engagement portal that we allow health professionals now to use and we've spent a fair amount of time in developing and I'll show you some of the components. So when you integrate self-management training into routine care, it allows you to extend your care into the patient's life on a daily basis. Um, it's basically free for health professionals to use but actually now we've worked with health plans to reimburse you for preventive medicine counseling and preventive medicine services to prevent chronic pain, addiction, disability, and all the consequences. So in addition to office visits and consults, you can add 25 modifier with a CPT code, and I'll just review that briefly, so that you add additional fees to your office visit. And because it's prevention, it's typically covered 100% by a health plan because it's preventive services. Now, not all health plans understand this around the country. In Minnesota, United Healthcare understands Blue Cross Blue Shield is very good about it, and other health, some of the other health plans are getting on board. Preferred one in Minnesota is very good. Uh, so they're get, they get it. They understand it. They understand that when you implement self-care, 
the cost of treatment is going to be dramatically less. There was a study in Michigan that evaluated the cost of chronic pain patients. It didn't matter whether it was back pain, headaches, neck pain, hip pain, knee pain. It averaged between thirty and $40,000 per year. That was the mean. That was the average because often these patients go through lots of different treatments. And it's just a mill. Lots of different surgeries, blocks, things like that. And if they integrate self-managed training with the treatments, the treatments become more short-term, and they estimated that the cost reduction could be about 50% of that, which will turn out to be billions of dollars in cost reduction by implementing these simple paradigms and toolkits with patients. And so cost-wise, and I'll discuss that a little bit more as we go, uh, but this does employ a broader whole-person model of care. It's reimbursed as preventive services. It's easy to document in electronic health records, and we built that into the system so you just get a PDF and just put it in your records so that there's no long, or you just generate a template that's in some of the electronic records. And we have developed training programs for health professionals to use these toolkits also. So the scope of pain can, conditions that we focus on are these uh, seven, six, six conditions right now that focus on, because most of these risk factors are generalizable to all pain conditions. However, some of them, like postural factors, repetitive strain, are really focused on, on individual conditions. And so we do the cell, initial self-care, and then we get into the more generalizable risk factors. So as I mentioned, uh, each one of these, it's very simple to uh, introduce and quick enroll patients. A telehealth gets an email, telehealth coach uh, matches with the patient, they have their phone number, they call the patient. And it's personalized based on the risk assessment, you track outcomes, and it is online accessible by any, any person anywhere. And so, as I've repeated this over and over again, this is still the phrase that I use to begin the treatment planning process with the patient. I'm happy to provide you treatment, but it's more effective long-term if we also train you to reduce the lifestyle cause of pain. Are you interested? Um, and so, here is an example of a patient that went through our clinic with this type of program, integrated with the treatments, and she's a real patient. This is an article that was out um, in one of the journals. Uh, Olivia presented with a history, many years of headaches, facial pain, neck pain, with many failed treatments. I don't know what I can do. Can you help me? That's what most patients present. So I evaluated, discussed the treatment plan. I said, I'm happy to treat you, but more effective if we also train you to reduce the causes. Are you interested? They say, yeah. she said, yes, of course. So I quick enrolled her, and I usually have my staff do that. It takes about two seconds, put their name, email address, that's their username and password. Um, and they click the, they get the email, they click the link, and they do a secure HIPAA compliant, log in to register, they complete their pain and risk assessment, and there's a little tour of the program if they want to go through the tour. Each, each video is like five minutes or so, so it's not very long. And then you have, tell, then the coach, they get matched to a coach, they get a secure email sent out to introduce each, to each other. 
The coach calls Olivia, begins an initial session for goal setting and review steps, and use the telehealth phone visits to call the patient to see how they're doing. Now, it's not to kind of be negative. It really is about coaching, supporting the patient and making the changes they need. Um, but it's still something that if they don't engage in the relationship with somebody outside of the clinic office, they don't engage as much. So it's very important, the coach aspect of it. And Dr. Lipton will talk a lot more about that uh, uh, when I finish. And then the last one is the patient, the coach reviews the lessons over six months, at least six months. They implement an action plan. They go through these three tiers of learning, and they basically learn to make the changes that they need to in their lifestyle in order to improve. Uh, so, and the health coaching is critically important. And so we use trained certified health professionals. They coach on lifestyle. They promote prevention, healing, recovery, and normal function. They help set and achieve goals. They supportive and understanding, and they encourage that personal motivation that are really critical for patients. And the coach extends the care, as I mentioned, into the patient's lifestyle. So they help them achieve goals. They usually have about eight or more visits. They implement their action plan. They encourage adherence. They improve success and outcomes. And as needed, in some cases, we need health psychology, depression, suicidal ideation, uh, abuse at home. There's some issues that are deeper issues with a lot of patients. And we have the ability to do a telehealth psychology with video conferencing as needed. So it's still online. Um, and so these are the various online lessons. Uh, I don't want to get into all of the details on this, but you can see the extensiveness of all the risk factors that have been identified in the literature that drive chronic pain. And uh, for instance, uh, first we want them to understand pain and all those pain cycles and the importance of self-care. We also want them to do some immediate self-care, mainly reducing strain, stretching, you know, gentle stretching, um, and then we want them to have a balanced, relaxed posture. And so that's kind of what we do. And we have that self-care available for back, hip, neck, shoulder, headache, and jaw pain. And then we want them to get their mindset in the right place. We want to make sure that they are optimistic. They have a sense of self-efficacy, that self-care is going to work. We measure this that they have realistic expectations, that they're, they're able to be resilient and cope to the ups and downs of recovery. Because it's not something that, you know, you flick a switch and they get better. It's ups and downs over the course, and they want to bounce back from setbacks, identify what is that aggravating factor, and then help change that over time. Uh, lifestyle factors, we want a healthy diet, typically a Mediterranean type of diet, but there's a variety of different healthy diets that are pain-free diets. We want them to sleep every night really well, and there's some basic characteristic behavioral changes they can make to do that. Um, we want them to minimize substance use and improve their activity level during the day. Emotions, we want to reduce anxiety, depression, anger, and shame. Those are the big driver, emotional drivers of chronic pain. Shame is a big one. Feel guilt and shame about having pain and being disabled and not be able to do the things that everybody around is able to do. 
with fibromyalgia, it's really critically important. Um, and so we go through evidence-based suggestions on how to reduce these emotional factors. And this is a, this was an interesting finding in the literature that I, that I found when we studied um, what behavioral activities are most effective to shift from a negative emotion to a positive emotion, like from depression to happiness, or from anxiety to calm. And interestingly enough, the studies have shown that creative activities that you're engaged in and excited about, you know, whether it's art therapy, music therapy, pet therapy, gardening therapy, cooking therapy, all of these creative activities are as effective as any anti-anxiety or antidepressant medication. And so why not teach the patient or encourage the patient to get involved in the things that makes them excited on a daily basis to create something. Um, and so uh, spirit, spirit actually turned out to be one of the most significant risk factors. These, this, and it's not religious per se, it's, this, it's the higher level cognitive functioning about purpose, finding purpose in life. Find having self-compassion and hopes and dreams and have that grit and determination. It's about your energy to be able to pursue the things you want to pursue in life. And a person is lost in life or is totally apathetic and really doesn't care, doesn't have a drive, they don't do very well because they, you know, it is what it is and they're not going to be motivated to really make the changes that they need. And then, uh, Social life, so being part of a social group, love and belonging is really critical. To have that social support and to be involved in a work situation or at least a daily activity situation where there's well-being and social support that's part of that. And to identify and reduce social stressors, people who you have conflicts with on a regular basis, work stress, secondary gain, you've heard of that before where you're in a situation where it's easier to have an illness than it is to, to be well, because you always have an excuse to say, oh, I'm not going to do that, to somebody who's hounding you all the time on a work or daily basis. And so these relationships are critically important to set, set the patient up in a social environment that allows them, and that's why we we want them to have a social support network so we can sign people up to, give, to get emails to encourage them to support the patient to make the changes that they need to do in the life. And so they can set up their own support team as part of the platform to do that. And then last one is environmental tools. Environmental factors are the number one initiating factor for chronic pain. Accidents, whether it's car accidents and injuries, slipping and falling on debris in your house or outside or on the ice in Minnesota, um, or driving around crazy drivers, you know, there's crazy drivers everywhere. Then these, we don't want them to have another accident. We want to teach them how to have a safe lifestyle so they don't re-injure themselves once they start getting better. And so part of that is to have a hygienic lifestyle, pollution-free, and minimize risk, including healthcare risk. So the possibility of, uh, you know, having a complication from an intervention or from a medication is very high with these patients. 
And we want to minimize that negative risk because that sometimes contributes to their continuation of their pain. So there are three action plan items that we want the patients to do. Um, one is to develop healthy habits. And so healthy habits in every area of their life are critically important. Studies of exercise, posture, diet, sleep, social support, and it goes on and on in each of the seven rounds of a person's life. So healthy habits, the acronym, interestingly enough, is healthy actions bring improvement and transformation. So there's a lot of acronyms within the program so the patients have a tendency to remember what they are. So the evidence suggests that they are very, very effective in preventing chronic pain. Now, second action plan, very important, lots of research behind this, is taking mindful pauses throughout the day. So mindfulness practice, being aware of posture and strain, substance use, emotional awareness, and social support are all part of that process of just taking a pause multiple times a day. Pay attention to yourself, the people around you, your emotions, your thoughts, your posture, your tension, just to pay attention is very, very therapeutic and effective. And the third one is to practice calming. Reducing that central sensitization is really important by practicing calming throughout the day. And these are things that we all should do, and we probably all do this as part of our normal life, but patients with pain really need to focus on these three action plan items and it, this applies throughout the whole program in each of the seven realms. So studies of meditation, biofeedback, self-hypnosis, emotional calming have all had very excellent results in terms of therapeutic effect. Um, so three action plans, healthy habits, taking mindful pauses, and I just want to remind you of the acronym, pause, assess, understand, start new, and enjoy the moment. It took a little bit of thinking to figure these out. And calm, calming actions that lighten the mind and emotions, if you want to add an E to it. Um, and then uh, there are lots of resources that we provide. Uh, we have smartphone access, worksheets, dashboards, action plans, reminder. We really wanted this to be a patient engagement portal. They can turn to this anytime they want and they get solutions to their self-care aspects of it. And they can call the coach, or they can call the provider, and you can do telehealth visits with them over the phone and get reimbursed for that also. So this is what we do. Typically, providers can just register for it. There's no cost to register. They can introduce it. They use preventive medicine counseling, 99402, as a CPT code in addition to the offices that you could document in the EMR. Now the health plans have also been reimbursing the online training, the risk reduction training. Primarily with 98960, um, and we also use a risk assessment 96160 or 50. So we've really spent a year training the health plans to get the message that they need to reimburse us for implementing self-care, otherwise it will not get done. 
And they understand it. They always say, yeah, yeah, we understand that. We understand, yeah. And so they have been doing this. They have been reimbursing within our pilot studies. And so we have not released this nationally yet, but we want to do this really soon and happy to, if anybody's interested in using it, happy to uh, work with you on that. And so the whole model is to try to reverse the pain cycle to be more of a transformative, reverses the pain cycle. So lower stress, positive emotion, better coping, improved sleep, energy, less chemical use, decreased muscle tension, and then it just goes and goes and goes into a protective action cycle to prevent chronic pain, addiction, and all the negative consequences. So we put a lot of research into this, a lot of finances too. We did a lot of pre-development research, mostly NIH funded. We did a conceptual evaluation within a course where we had 55,000 people take the course from around the world, every country. We did a randomized clinical trial with uh, NIH funding. And now we're in the process of doing a broad scale pragmatic trial with volunteer clinicians around the country so we can track, well, how does this use beyond our small group? Um, so we've done a lot of evidence-based research with it. Um, we also have a variety of training programs, including a course that's online through the University of Minnesota. We have a course to orient providers on how to use it. We have a Institute for Healthcare Excellence has a six hour small skills course. And we're implementing uh, through the International Myopain Society, a pain management skills course also. And Dr. Lipton and myself will be involved in that also. So we have a lot of training programs that we're implementing uh, now for this too. And it's part of pain week. We're hoping it becomes part of pain week on a regular basis. So with that, I want to turn it over to Dr. Lipton to talk about the health coaching component to this and to really see how did we implement this within the type of practice you did. So thank you very much for your attention. Appreciate it. Anybody want to stand up, move around? You guys just asleep? <laughs> If you don't, that is fine. You can see that Dr. Frickton and his group has put a lot of work. Can you hear me? Is this thing on? Okay. I put a lot into uh, developing a program that can be accessible. Because in almost every lecture that I've been at, at Pain Week, people have mentioned the benefits of working with health coaches and how much health coaches can help in lifestyle implementation. The reality is people, it's hard to afford to work with a health coach. So I have a lot of patients that um, pay to see me. And then if I say, in addition, I want you to spend more money to work with this health coach, they, that can be a really limiting factor. And for the most part, unfortunately, insurance has not kind of caught up with the need to uh, reimburse or pay for health coaching. So programs like Dr. Frickton's, the PACT program, is sort of uh, uh, developing ways to implement it that I think can be reimbursable, can be scalable, can be used widespread. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about kind of where are the gaps in 
uh, health coaching for chronic pain and how we can, as providers, uh, fill in some of those gaps. So there is already uh, kind of an analogy that I think can help people to understand how a health coach can be useful um, with another chronic medical condition. So with diabetes, there's diabetic nurse educators, right? And it's very common for somebody, a primary care doctor, to diagnose somebody with diabetes and then say, hey, I want you to work with this diabetic health educator, usually they're nurses with some additional training, um, and learn how to eat differently, learn how to give yourself insulin, learn how to um, you know, count your carbs. These are all things that a physician, healthcare professional is probably not gonna have time in that five minute visit, um, but the diabetic nurse educators can be hugely helpful and they spend time with patients and patients that work with them do much better in managing their diabetes. So I think that the analogy I would like to kind of give to the, you know, the payers and the um, institutions out there is that there already is a model for this and we know that it works. And so if we could figure out a way to have some consistent training, so whether it's maybe call them chronic pain educators or might have to use a word that's different than coaching. Um, I think if we could do that and incorporate that, if that became a normal part of how you care for somebody who's dealing with pain, and then if that was something that also... Um, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I'm just going to move your microphone upside down. Oh, no. Okay. difficulties. Thank you. So I can get through med school, but I can't put a mic on, so it's all right. <laughs> just a doctor. Uh, where was I? So there already is a model, and I think that it would be beautiful to incorporate that. And I think that's what um, one way to do that is in something like the PACT program. So the challenge in incorporating health coaching into real life is number one, cost. How do you pay for it? Do patients pay out of their pocket? Are they getting any insurance reimbursement? That's one problem. The second problem is consistency of training. So I have personally referred my patients to health coaches had them work with them and have disastrous results because that health coach was not somebody that really understood fibromyalgia or really understood chronic pain. So there's health coaches and then there's health coaches with a pain specialty. So I feel like we sort of need this, you know, there's baseline health coaching 101 and that is important. But if, if I'm gonna refer to a health coach and I want that person to help my patients with fibromyalgia, I wanna know that they have a consistent level of training, that there's sort of a curriculum that they've gone through. And Dr. Frickton's program does have that. You know, it's a curriculum-based program. And it's important for insurance reimbursement that it be a curriculum-based program. And that the health coach, as they work with you, that it's really um, directive and it's really targeted towards each of those action plans. So unlike normal health coaching, we're kind of, a patient comes in and says, hey, I'm trying to lose weight, help me with that. It's sort of more patient-directed. In this case, actually, it's a little bit more um, coach-directed, simply so that the, the curriculum can be adequately covered. And so I got burned a few times with uh, referring patients to health coaches, and then the health coach recommended something that I didn't agree with, or that actually I felt like harmed the patient, or that I felt like was actually really medical advice. Like I had a patient come back to me and they were really upset. They said, why didn't you tell me I had SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth? And I said, well, we've actually never 
talked about that, you know. She said, well, my health coach told me I have it. And I was like, oh, okay. So we have to be really careful that coaches are kind of staying in their lane and that health providers, healthcare providers know how, where health coaches can be helpful. And I think this is where having a curriculum, having some sort of standardized training, particularly for chronic pain, it could be broadly for chronic pain, it could be specifically, let's say, for fibromyalgia, or, or you know, you could narrow it down as much as you wanted. But, I mean, the ultimate truth is, I can make recommendations all day long, but if patients can't implement them, that 80-20 rule, right? I'm doing 20% of the work, patients are doing 80% of the work. Coaches really help with implementation. So I like to say that coaches focus, they like to focus on the how. So I tell patients what to do, coaches help them with implementation, how to actually make it happen in their life. And that's different for each person, right? So interestingly, there was a pilot study done on uh, health coaching specifically for fibromyalgia. And it was a small study, but it showed really good results. Uh, the FICR, which is a um, fibromyalgia impact questionnaire, kind of standardized testing of fibromyalgia impact, improved by about 35%. So actually slightly more than what we see in the medication studies. And then this is the one that really blows me away. Healthcare utilization declined by 86% in these patients. Like, we're talking like $30,000 a year was saved. And I'm like, whoa, okay, great. So the health, you know, all the insurance companies are going to jump right on this, right, and start training healthcare. Co yeah, no, it doesn't happen like that. Unfortunately, it's a bit more of a grassroots effort, and Dr. Fruchton is really leading that. Um, so as an example, I talked about this earlier. Please, please, please do not tell your patients with fibromyalgia to exercise. If you just say that, you've already lost them. What you have to say is you have to figure out a way to explain to them the benefits of therapeutic movement. And if I don't have time to explain that in an office visit, maybe that online training module, maybe I direct them towards that, like something in the PACT program, or you know, similar type things, so that patients understand how that's gonna help them, why they need to work on moving, not just like, you know, if you hear you need exercise, there's this real sort of shame feeling, and I like that Dr. Frickton brought that up, because as somebody who experienced the shame of fibromyalgia, um, it's, it's really real. Um, and so if somebody, you know, you're already kind of feeling bad about yourself, and you're feeling physically bad, and then your provider tells you to exercise, there's this judgment involved, and if you just phrase it a little differently, the implementation becomes vastly easier. So I say, studies have shown that gentle therapeutic movement improves pain in fibromyalgia. Do you wanna learn how to do that? And patients always say yes, right? But that's different than like, mm, you really should be exercising and maybe lose some weight, and probably you're depressed. I mean, there's just, it's just a shift in your words and attitude, right? And unfortunately, fibromyalgia, there's a lot of, there's still a lot of stigma. There's a lot of attitude around it. It's getting better, but you have to be just careful in the words that you use. So therapeutic movement, not exercise, asking them if they want to engage, figuring out ways to help, help them learn their risk factors, their protective actions they can take. And here's what I tell people. So I say, therapeutic movement, start low and go slow, literally one minute a day. 
And fibromyalgia patients, on average, a 40-year-old fibromyalgia patient has the physical function of an 80-year-old. So how would you tell your 80-year-old patient, as far as physical capacity, exercise capacity, so how would you tell an 80-year-old patient to exercise? Well, you might, might tell them a little differently, right? Like, try this gentle thing, maybe try a class, maybe try warm water pool therapy. Ease your way into it. And really, it doesn't matter what the exercise is, every form of exercise that they have studied in fibromyalgia helps. So it's just a matter of how you do it, starting it little tiny doses. I will often have patients, I'll say, start with one minute of movement every two days. That is all I'm asking you, one minute. And I will tell you that even with that, some of my patients give me this like deer in headlights, like I can't move, I, I hurt. Because our instinct when we hurt is to, we want to stop, we need to rest, you know, we got to like not move. So I have, I start the bar so low that people, even if they just stumble forward, will, will pass it. And then, and then there's this sort of like, oh yeah, I, d I did that. And it's kind of relearning, like I can, I can do that. Okay, maybe next week I'm gonna do two minutes every two or three days. And I know it sounds ridiculous, but I'm telling you that's what makes the difference. So start low, go slow. Warm up is pretty key. So one thing I talked about a lot earlier today is how tense fibromyalgia muscles are. And if you imagine super tense muscles that you then take and go exercise, maybe kind of aggressively, are those muscles gonna be more prone to injury, pain? Yes. So if you can do a five minute warm up, and by warm up, I mean really just gentle stretches and moving the joints through their range of motion. If you do that, people tend to tolerate fibromyalgia exercise much, much better. And if you want to see something pretty hilarious, you can go to YouTube and I have a warm-up video that I have done and you can watch me guide a friend of mine that I bribed into doing it with me. Um, I, I guide through a fibromyalgia warm-up exercise that you can do, it takes five minutes. It really makes, makes a difference. So that's something that a health coach could help implement. A health coach could help somebody figure out how to implement exercise, right? But it's also pretty, doesn't take that much time as providers. I think we can, we can swing it. And, you know, PTs actually can be our best friends sometimes. PTs that are aware of fibromyalgia can be infinitely helpful in the implementation of the, some of these things, teaching people how to warm up. Now, PTs that are not fibromyalgia aware and just sort of put somebody on the bike and do, you know, weights the first visit for 30 minutes, that's not, you know, that's not going to cut it. So somebody that is fibromyalgia aware has some additional training or just even understanding of it, PTs can really help. So um, the, the components I wanted to make sure that I covered was to let you know that it is absolutely possible to give fibromyalgia patients good constructive advice about how to exercise. Just don't call it exercise. Um, that working with a health coach, particularly if down the road we get some uh, more consistent curriculum trained uh, chronic pain coaches, if there's maybe an organization that can you know, certify this person has undergone this much training, then feel a lot more comfortable recommending that. And if miracles of miracles, health insurance starts paying for it, even better. And I think um, you know, one-on-one -on -one 
care with a provider with you know a health coach or a provider is expensive but if you're doing something that's more scalable like the pact program where there's more online interface where there's a lot of uh, self-education where there's a telehealth coach so it doesn't have to be in the same city i mean that can really uh, make this much more affordable much more able to be spread broadly because I don't feel like it should just be the wealthy folks with fibromyalgia who can afford to work with a health coach that have this opportunity. Like we need to figure out some way to make this more broadly accessible. And I really, I will tell you that Dr. Fruchton has done a ridiculous amount of work on the PACT program and it's really, really good. And the videos are really great. Um, and so I think, correct me if I'm wrong, um, online they can access some of the training materials um, that, let's say, a health coach that was going to be working in the PACT program. Um, on Coursera, you can access uh, the training modules that they would go through. And so it can be useful for both patients, providers, coaches. Um, and I think things will be shifting as, as he brings his platform up more. Um, and then maybe the training will be through that. But for now, you can access it here. And it's it's really good, so little plug for him. I'm not getting paid for it, I'm just telling you, it's really good. <laughs> so that's really all I have, but did you wanna come up and, I don't know. I know other people have to leave for planes, yeah. But if there's any questions, I think we're happy to answer. Yes. Got, a, got a microphone here, hang on one second. I have a question. Okay. Uh, as part of my job uh, as a pain management physician, I work in, close to the border um, with Mexico and California with um, a lot of patients that um, are not wealthy at all. They don't, don't have computers, so they couldn't access something like that. Um, they also, a lot of them are also Spanish speaking only. And um, eventually if, <laughs> if you know, we could set up something even in the office where they could come in and use the computer there, but um, I'm sure there's no uh, translation into Spanish or any other languages. That something like that would be wonderful. It really would. Um, and yeah, let me kind of comment on that because we're working with a rheumatology clinic down in San Antonio, Texas that has uh -huh. about a third of their patients as Spanish speakers also. And we have a health coach that's a Spanish speaker who's working with that clinic and can work with those clients that have our Spanish speaking. Now, in addition to that, most computers have the ability to translate the, the language uh, into different languages. And so uh, we have one of our coaches, for instance, who is uh, blind. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and she, um, all the text messages are translated and, and spoken, and they can be translated into different languages. Um, however, we don't have the program right now translated basically in Spanish, um, but many of the people who are in the boundaries area with Mexico, they at least can read or see some of it. Um, and a lot of it is, uh, you know, because it's uh, visual with pictures that and things would help. like that, yeah. it does help quite a bit. Um, and so, you know, we understand those issues. And we also have, of course, in all the handouts, 
The handouts are a direct reflection of all the slide presentations, and so in two or three pages, that's going to be in English, and we, we will eventually translate all mm -hmm. of those into Spanish. And for those people who are not computer literate, don't have a computer, it'll be accessible via their phone, or it's also, you can just get one of the manuals. Just copy. Yeah. And just go through it. And then it's a, all it does is provide, as Dr. Lipton said, a structured curriculum to really understand what they need to do um, in general. And it's the coach who then, if they speak Spanish, can kind of help explain it and help motivate it and help make the changes to occur. So it's, it's getting there. Now this course, the MOOC course, is also in multiple languages. Yeah. And so that is translated into Spanish. And they Perfect. Can, it's a little longer. It's 20 hours uh, because each lecture is about the science and research behind it. But it's very practical also. Mm -hmm. Half of the people, of the 55,000 have taken the course. Half of them were patients. The other half held professionals. And the patients really thought it was very successful. If you go to the next slide, oh, yeah. um, it'll talk a little bit about... So here, here is some of the results of what the learners have said about the course. In 93% said it changed their life. 85% of the health professionals said it changed the way they cared for patients. And you can read some of the comments about the learning experience. And one of them is interested. And uh, let's see if this is in here. It's, no, I guess it's not. But oh, here it is, the first one. The learning experience was tremendous. Everyone should have this knowledge, especially those in the health professions. Mm -hmm. So it, remember, these risk factors are generalizable to not just pain, but Everything. for every chronic illness. Exactly. And whether it's diet, sleep, sure. stress management, it is applicable. And so that's the whole idea, is to really try to hit the generalizable risk factors the best we can. And there are specific risk factors directed towards hip pain or back pain or shoulder pain. Sure. But in general, the vast majority of them are generalizable. And are the preventative CPT codes also applicable to um, like Medicaid? Do they accept those or recognize Well, those? they do. They do accept the uh, preventive. That, now, they, they pulled out of the 99401 or 402 preventive medicine counseling, and they have a different code they now want you to use for Medicare. And I didn't include it here because yeah. that was a change as of July 1st or uh -huh. July 30th, something like that. And so, but the, the 98960, which is a risk factor reduction training, and the 96150, which is the risk factor uh, assessment, are both covered by Medicare and Medicaid at a, you know, a minimal, I don't know, 50 cents or something like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> right. But still, they, they want them to be covered. And in, in, in general, we... We want this to be accessible, not just to health professionals, but to consumers. And ultimately, we should do a direct-to-patient model for patients who really want to use it. Um, and that's why we put this course on Coursera. It is free for anybody in the world to access it. And so it, uh, you know, it's, it, it goes over all the science behind each of What's these What's it called on the Coursera? Like, what would they search for? Well, they search for Coursera, of course, and then right. under Coursera, just the preventing, preventing chronic pain, a human systems approach is the name of the course. And uh, it's, you can search that 
just in the Google search and it'll come up. Uh, there's not too much information on preventing chronic pain, interestingly enough, out there, <laughs> which is really like, duh. It's the first I've heard of it. I, I so. know. It's like, that's what we should all be doing is preventing exactly. chronic pain. Uh, but it's a new idea that it's not something that is general. That's why I'm presenting at Pain Week with Dr. Lipton, and it's really, you know, it's a kind of a new idea for, for people to think about. So. So, is, should this be implemented in the primary care setting? I mean, because primary care sends everybody to pain management now, even when they broke their arm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sometimes without the x rays. We think this is a primary care model. I mean, it can be implemented by specialists and primary care, but we think it's got to be at the primary care level because remember, when they have pain at one month, more than 50% of those patients still have pain five years later despite treatment. So if we can get them in the first couple months or first six months of, of their injury and they begin to understand some of the risk factors that will drive chronic pain, you know, it's going to be a world, huge difference in terms of outcome of those patients. So we think it's a primary care model, but you know, primary care, you know, is so, it's more of a simplistic kind of approach to care. You know, if they come in, you say, okay, it's good, and write a prescription, then they go on. Now, if we could implement this within primary care so that the, you know, they see the patient, oh, you've injured your neck, you've already had a month of pain, it's not getting better, then we need to really say, let's, let's get you involved in a training program and coaches working with you over the phone to make sure. And not every patient is open to that, uh, but you know, it's like this is just available for whatever they want. They can do one session, they can do 32 sessions. The coach can be call them one time or they can call them eight times, 12 times, all, all build on, a, on that you know, fee-for-service type of approach. So, we just think it's a primary care model is what we really want to teach to prevent chronic pain, addiction, disability, and the consequences. So good point. And then the second part of that, um, when we, uh, as primary care in that field, when you go ahead and refer to the diabetic um, counseling, um, they have a criteria, you know, whether they're going to accept them, they're overwhelmed. And so their A1C has to be, you know, at eight or above for them to even accept them. And then it's months down the road before they actually get their new education, even as a new diabetic. And so what is the, what would you say the criteria would be for that? Well, right now we don't have any criteria. We think everybody, like everybody should know this stuff, you know, the, because it's, it, and, and as Dr. Lipton showed in that one slide, that it reduced healthcare utilization by 86%. That's just the coaching model. Adding a structured curriculum on that is, is going to be even more significant. So this is an opportunity to transform the healthcare system, is what we're thinking. And, and I've had patients say to me, it's, oh my gosh, you're 20 years ahead of time. Why every health professional should be using a program like this? And so we, we think that it is something that uh, should be implemented, um, you know, in a, in a routine basis. Uh, to answer your question, though, specifically, um, I think, you know, 
we still often in primary care ask people what their pain is, the fifth vital sign. I wonder if, you know, if people say it's five or above um, for two visits in a row, could that, you know, three visits in a row, could there be some sort of trigger there? Um, I mean, the reality is, you're right, the diabetic health educators, are, our system is, is swamped. Um, so trying to figure out, you know, who are the folks that really need this, um, at kind of triage, but I think if somebody has, you know, a certain amount of pain, one or two visits in a row at primary care, I think that should flag something, say, okay, you know, maybe you could be referred to this program. And the thing is, what's beautiful about the PACT program is that it's, it's really, it's online, and it's online and it's telehealth, right? So it doesn't have to be, you know, you going down to see your diabetic health educator at the hospital downtown and it's full and blah, blah, blah. It can really be spread out and I think that might make it more accessible, even in our system. I just have a comment. Uh, thank you both for what you do. Uh, I learned a ton, and as all of us. Um, I think one of the criteria could be uh, morphine equivalent dose use. Uh, we've heard a number of uh, lectures uh, you know, this week you know, opioids are not even indicated for fibromyalgia, you know, so I'm thinking to myself, well, I need to wean all my patients off who are on opioids and primary diagnosis fibromyalgia. Um, so that's a challenge. Uh, but if we have, uh, you know, patients on over 50 MEGs a day and fibro is primary diagnosis, that's a criteria. Yeah, that's true. So we need that's to actually... do something other than in light of, uh, you know, opioids overuse. Well, and I think what's brilliant about that is that the challenge in the, you know, if we just say, okay, we recognize opioids aren't the right approach, what do we put in, in place of that, right? So I think for the fibromyalgia patients, they're like, okay, so you're just taking away a tool. What are you, what are you adding to my toolbox? So I think that could be something we're like, well, we'll, you know, work on reducing this, but adding this, here's this other way to go. It's easy to write a prescription for self-management training as easy it is to write a prescription for medications, opioids, and things like that. So that's where we want to kind of shift is to learn to write a prescription for self-management training. And it's really not hard to do. Although you do have to explain it to the patient using some kind of quote like I use with my patients. And then they're going to say, well, how do you do that? And then you have to go over that. But that's what you get paid for. That's what preventive medicine counseling is about. Uh, and then, and, you know, even if you do less than 15 minutes, it still adds about $60 to an office visit. So it just helps, except if you're Medicare, you know. It's, uh, that's a different code they want to use for that, but it, I think it will be. It's something anyway. It. Yeah, yeah, it is something. All right. Thank you guys so much for yeah, coming so and sticking it out. Really appreciate it.